Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Deep Dish Radio. I'm Tim Powers. My guest today is songwriter Bobby Hart, who has written and co-written some of the most enduring popular hits of the 20th century. Most famous for working with Tommy Boyce as the duo Boyce and Hart, they not only charted hits like I Wonder What She's Doing Tonight and Out and About, but wrote and produced The Monkees' first album and their biggest hit, Last Train to Clarksville. Bobby's autobiography, Psychedelic Bubblegum, Boyce and Hart, The Monkees, and Turning Mayhem into Miracles is the story of how Bobby found his way not only to professional and financial success, but to personal satisfaction and spiritual enlightenment, all while center stage during the most exciting time in rock and roll history. Finding himself, Bobby healed his injuries and scars, and in his book, he's happy to share with enthusiasm, wisdom, charm, and humor. Lessons on how anyone can create the life they want. And he tells some great stories along the way, and he does so with me today. Psychedelic Bubblegum, Boyce and Heart, The Monkeys, and Turning Mayhem into Miracles is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, from the official Boyce and Heart website, BoyceandHeart, H-A-R-T.com, and of course, your locally owned and operated book retailer. If you find Bobby as charming and insightful as I did during this interview, you're going to want this book. Here's my interview with songwriter Bobby Hart. Subscribe today and tell a friend about Deep Dish Podcast with Tim Powers, with Tim Powers. So let's, uh, let's start out. You started as a, uh, a rockabilly singer. Yeah, and- actually... I didn't know it, and but I guess that's what I was. I, uh, you know, I'd I'd gotten I'd come to L.A. 18 years old, just dropped off in the corner of Hollywood and Vine, and as green as you can get. I came to go to disc jockey school, and I got sidetracked right away uh, by a little sign I passed on the way to work every morning that said, "Come come in, see what your voice sounds like." Ten dollars. It was a little recording studio. And so I finally did that and started making demos, and immediately, uh, I'd say within two or three months, I was abandoning my disc jockey dreams and and having dreams of becoming a, a rock and roll star. 
Well, yeah, even as a as a fledgling rock and roll star, you'd have made more money <laughs> at that than you ever would as a disc jockey. I'll tell you, that's true. Um, but you had your finger on the pulse of the of the industry from a from a from a weird fifty foot view even before that, uh, running a press, right? Yeah, I I had to you know I came here with fifty dollars in my pocket, so I had to get a job, and I did have some skills uh, running a, an automated. Uh, Heidelberg Press. So I set out on a Monday morning, my first week in town, armed with all of the uh, print shops that whose uh, whose telephone number started with H O for Hollywood. I knew that was the Hollywood area prefix. Yep. So I, by noon, I had a job running Heidelberg Presses, printing record labels. And so, so you were printing the labels of the singles that kids would be picking up down the street at the uh, at the record store, not th- not that far away. So you, um, you you told this story about how you had an idea of what was what was going to come up the charts by the volume of printing that you were doing. Can you talk about well, that? Well, I I, uh, I started as as I mentioned, I started hanging out this little recording studio, making making demos. Was every Saturday, every moment I had off, I'd be in there and spending all the money I had, and. Uh, a guy recognized uh, something in me early on and said, you know, you guys, I like what, what I'm hearing that you're making, these demos you're making, and why don't you go down and see this friend of mine named Jesse Hodges, who's had, he's a record producer, he might like what you're doing. So I went down and saw Jesse, played him a couple demos, and at that point I hadn't written anything. They were just songs like You Are My Sunshine and kind of generic things that I was updating. And uh, Jesse said, you know, you sound good, but I'm really only interested in, in uh, singers that have their own material. That's what I'm looking for. Go home and write some songs and then come back and see me. So just because he told me to, I did. I had no idea how, but I just, I had a guitar and had some musical, some musical training as a kid. So I came back to him with songs and he signed me to, to, uh, to a recording contract to his record production company probably not more than four months after hitting town. So uh, that's what I was doing uh, when, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Tim, forgive me, what was sure. the question I was trying to answer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just letting it roll, Bobby. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the question that I asked was uh, if you could tell the story about, uh, about oh, yes, how, you, how you knew it was happening it. with the, with the yeah. charts. Yeah, so so I had a I had a recording contract with a production company within four months of hitting town, and uh, so Jesse said, you know, hang out at the office now. You're part of the family, and I'd meet people there like Dorsey and Johnny Burnett, uh, pioneers of rock and roll, and right. and indirectly I met Tommy Boyce through Jesse. But anyway, Jesse had this scheme he told me about, uh, or this idea, I should say, <laughs> in deference, God rest his soul. Uh, he said. Uh, you know, cash bo- both Cashbox and Billboard magazines, which had the charts of uh, the hit songs of the day, they both had this policy where they would list a song that would be selling, and under the song would be all of the people who had recorded that song. Sometimes in those days, several people would, would record the same song. Right. And it didn't matter who had the hit, they would all be listed under the song. It was kind of a strange, bizarre system but that's the way it was so he saw a loophole there <laughs> for his artist he said let me uh let, if, if i can figure out uh soon enough what what song is going to be on the chart soon 
I'll just cut that as a B-side for one of my acts, and, and I'll have instant publicity because <laughs> their name will be under the song along with the hit version. So I said, oh, I can help with that because I'm putting record labels. I can tell before the charts which ones are going to sell by the orders, how big the orders are for the records. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so I, I, I kind of got in trouble doing that. I, I gave him a... I, I gave him Richie Valens, <clears throat> his new album, his new single coming out was called uh, Come On, Let's Go, I think. And I said, wow, they're really ordering big on this, coming off of La Bamba. And uh, so that was a great plan, and Jesse was going in the studio, and somebody leaked leaked it back to the to the record company that uh, Richie Valens was on, which was Bob Keane's uh, label. Right. And he didn't take it well at all that, the, that this idea was going on, and... I came in one morning, and uh, the guy I worked for said, uh, our biggest client just demanded that, that uh, I fire you today. And he gave me a stern talk, and he didn't fire me, but uh, I learned a, a little lesson there about insider trading. <laughs> <laughs> so, And this is about 1956, 7, thereabouts? Uh, I came here on New Year's Day, 1958, and uh, so we've still been 58. Okay. And the, you know, so you you have this recording contract, and you you had, you know, your managers trying to get uh, the the Bobby Hirschman singles uh, yeah. played around the country in the in the late fifties, yeah. And none of them really really took off. And no, I must have had uh, I must have had a dozen singles between my first real success as an artist and. Uh, and the, and that first song that I released, I mean, uh, I just kept plugging away, right. having another bomb. Well, I, you know, it, it made me wonder when I was reading, you know, you're you're cut from a, a similar cloth. You have radio in your blood. You know, you you played yeah. disc jockey. You wanted to go to disc jockey school, and I'm wondering if about this time um, in popular music. Well, first of all, local disc jockeys were programming their own music, which they don't do anymore. But right. they were shall we say encouraged to play certain singles and oh uh, that's true there was the the whole payola era which really peaked in the 50s uh when the federal government started investigating that, right. that uh, all this was going on the pay for play and didn't think it was uh, kosher and uh but uh, some of the biggest ones like alan freed not only out of business but in jail i think he did jail time if i'm not mistaken i think you're right and, uh, of course, uh, Dick Clark, uh, dodged that bullet pretty quickly. He dodged it, yeah. He had, uh, I'm sure he had something going on, but it wasn't, uh, he was much smarter than some of the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm wondering if that, uh, you know, if that was going on at a time that might have affected the, the Bobby Harshman singles, um, you know, I suppose so. I was signed to a small record label called Radio Records, and right. uh, it was not. They, they certainly weren't throwing money at these places. I remember our first promotion trip was just driving from Los Angeles to San Francisco and looking for radio towers along the way, and we'd just go in unannounced and ask, you know, give them the record, and they'd play it, and we'd be off uh, to the next one. But I'm sure it was not consistent play. I'm sure they didn't continue yeah. playing it. It's like once once you were out the door, they're like, "Okay, back to Chuck Berry." Exactly. Yeah, amazing. Um, it's really a an the the first third of the book 
is the ascent and and some of the things that that you went through and i noticed a, a common theme i noticed three common themes throughout okay, good. throughout Be the whole book um the the first is loneliness which oh. you know i learn a lot about the man bobby hart in in that the second is your spiritual journey mm-hmm. and then the third is radio which uh-huh. just spoke to me yeah. You know, this, this kid in a, in a, in, you know, in the middle of nowhere in Arizona and his connection to the world was whatever came in through, through AM radio. That's true. And that's a story that's... that I hear from a lot of, a lot of the disc jockeys that I looked up to and a mm-hmm. lot of the rock stars that mm-hmm. I looked up to and, and related to it myself. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, tell me a little bit about what it was like to be little Bobby Harshman with your, with your, uh, AM console and what you picked up and what you heard and how it influenced you. Well, it's very insightful, Tim. I, I like that. Uh, my first uh, radio set was uh, a cat ki- cat whisker uh, crystal set, and I don't suppose anybody knows what those are. Did you build it yourself? No, my dad built it for me. Cool. We were from, uh, I'd, I'd say, uh, a, I would call it a really poor family until later when my, my dad started doing better, but he never, I never lacked for uh, what I what I needed and the things that I was interested in, he always supported. He was a he was the kind of guy that was big into hobbies and himself, and he would find cheap ways to make things. And <laughs> so he 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 just read it. You know, he, I remember he used to bring home these uh, oh um, popular science and popular mechanics magazines, and they'd show you how to do things in there. So he found uh, an actual a quartz crystal in the desert. And he and you found how to make a little cat whisker, and the, what it was was just a small piece of wire attached to a handle, and you would adjust that handle so the end of the wire was touching one of these different spots that had crystal on right. them. And that was and your tuning. That's how you would tune from one station to another. Yeah, and I'm, you'd had to use uh, earphones to hear it. I built one then, in, in junior high. You did. Oh, yeah. so then later I got a real radio, of course, but. You're right. It was it was radio that was my pipeline to the world, and I remember uh, uh, a trip to Ohio to visit with my mom to visit her father. My grandfather lived on a farm with no indoor plumbing and quite primitive, uh, but he had a big barn, which I immediately uh, uh, took took over for him to make my little play radio station out of because it was quiet out there and I could do whatever I wanted. And he had an old cylinder uh, record player, and people don't remember those either, but it was vinyl before vinyl was flat. Right. Cylinders that spun around and the needle would go, would be stationary. No electricity, right? It's Victola, Victola. No electricity. He would crank it up, and I was having a great time spinning the tunes on the, on the old cylinder. <laughs> but uh, I cranked it too hard one time, and the crank came off, and I broke the thing. Ugh. And so a friend loaned me their radio. And I, I tuned into a, a country station back there in Ohio somewhere that was playing. Uh, uh, I got a feeling called the blues. The yeah. old Hank Williams record was a great record. <laughs> I recorded later on, <clears throat> and uh, so that was kind of my introduction. I don't know, might have been six, seven to country music, and that was my. That's what I just gravitated to, and back in Phoenix, their number one station was the country station. A uh, bunch, of, bunch of hillbillies. We yeah, were, I was going to say, what, what else were they, were they listening to, you know? <laughs> yeah, 
What else and so when uh, that was, you know, I preferred that over what they called popular music before pop. It was popular, and that was the Sinatra style uh, crooners, and and I could not relate to that very much. It just didn't touch me. I didn't feel like it had any soul to it. Cause so it, cause I, it didn't. Uh, <laughs> I what's Because it didn't. Because it didn't. Well, I suppose you know. I later became a big fan of Frank Sinatra when I saw him sing in person. Of course, and he did have such charisma and could you know and such technique. And at times I would even say he had a little soul, but some of them didn't. Some of them just were just technique only. Right. So I listened to country uh, that whole time, and then till till Rockabilly came in. And when the Rockabilly came in, our country station KHEP in Phoenix would was the first to play Elvis and. Gene Vincent and Carl Perkins. Was it was it Elvis that did it for you, or was it was it the other class of '57? You know, it was all it was all of those guys. I remember uh, th- those were three big influences. Uh, Gene Vincent, I just loved Bebopalula, and mm-hmm. of course Elvis. I got to see Elvis at the at the at the Arizona State Fairgrounds when I was probably in twelfth uh, grade, or uh, maybe maybe earlier than that. Uh, when he just had it, I think it was his first single in RCA. I think it was Hound Dog. And, wow. And, yeah, and Don't Be Cruel or something. Or maybe it was Heartbreak. I don't know. Maybe it was his second record. But anyway, it was that was an experience. And I loved Elvis uh, as much as any of the girls in my class. I mean, it was just across the board. He was It was a new sound. And we didn't know that that it was that he was a country boy that was channeling all of the southern gospel and black uh, music that he had heard in Memphis, we didn't know whether what the uh, influences were. We just knew this was something new to us, and it was it, talk about soul. I mean, this was heart wrenching. You just knew it was what it was. Yeah. Wow. You ever every thought- every generation has that. I think everybody, every kid wakes up and says, "Wow, what was that?" And it's something that his parents don't understand at all. Yep. But it speaks to him or her. It's it, that's that's really true. Uh, you ever thought about going going back to radio and now with everybody having uh, access to their own equipment now? Um, <laughs> you know, you ever thought about about spinning discs and you know, Bobby Hart spins you know, the oldies. I think I uh, I fulfilled my my karmic uh, desire in a couple of ways. One was uh, before I came to Hollywood, I had had done uh, the reserve plan, Army Reserve plan, or six months of active duty, and then. And then uh, summer camp and weekly uh, meetings for seven years, and so that six months was basic training at Fort Ord for for two months, and then the other four months was uh, at the Presidio in San Francisco, where I was in Armed Forces Radio Service. So I got to uh, start there. That was my first time of actually being a DJ, emceeing right. uh, the Sixth Army Band uh, <laughs> programs that we would send out. Uh, so I got to start it there, and then it kind of culminated uh, maybe in 68 or 69 when Tommy and I were asked, Tommy Boyce, uh, after our hits, we got a call from Wixie in, uh, in uh, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and the program director said, uh, our evening guy is leaving, and I think he's leaving on a Friday, and our new guy to take his place isn't coming until Monday, how would Boyce and Hart like to come and, and be our DJ for the weekend? So we jumped at it, and that was a real thrill, and that was a, that was a real, that was the top station in, in a big record market. So that really uh, really 
fed my desire, and, and I think I got it out of my system. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, the um, the other, well, of of the three things that I noticed, the second one was your spiritual journey, and I thought it was interesting how this Pentecostal kid from middle Arizona went to discover uh you know eastern philosophy and i gotta ask who saw the maharishi first you were the beatles um i did i didn't ever do that timeline I, I can i can probably say that when i met him was would have been 1965 then you were first probably so because there was a small uh what happened i was uh i was just kind of talking in general about some of the books i was reading and on uh, mysticism to mm -hmm. Henry Louis, our engineer at uh, at Western Recorders, and uh, and Henry said, "Well, you know, I'm into that too. I meditate." And uh, and uh, a few weeks later, he invited me to go with he and his wife to this small little private home in Los Angeles to to see the Maharishi Mahesh Yoga speak, and. Uh, this room, it was not a big house. It was a small house, and the living room probably didn't hold more than 25 people. So it was definitely early on, and that was, I'm sure everything changed once the Beatles visited him. Right. In Rishikesh. But uh, he uh, he was just so jolly and so full of joy, you know, and so yeah. so blissful. And he didn't, it didn't matter what the question was, the answer was always the same. Just do this transcendental meditation, and your life get better. <laughs> and it turned things around for you, which was which was it, really that interesting. It was the beginning, actually, not the beginning, but it was a big step. My first meditation techniques was was the, came from that organization, and and I did that for maybe seven or eight years before uh, I found my guru and his teachings, uh, and actually read his book in 1968, but didn't actually. Sign up for uh, initiation into the, into the meditation techniques till ten years later, but that that was uh, that was the start. That and some of the books I had read. And you're still uh, still practicing today. Still practicing and active in in the in the church and uh, and uh, still play the Hammond B three organ, which is my what I played in clubs and in, in your, the your early axe. 60s. Yeah, my axe. <laughs> Yeah, it was the it was that um your spirituality, I think, that as I got into the the final third of the book, it seemed like you found uh your footing as an individual after being part of a partnership. Um, you know, whether whether it was with Boyce or with you know any of the other guys that that you worked with before then or even your uh, romantic relationships. It's and, true. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I uh, well, I always seem to have a partner. I was, uh, as I talk about early in the book, I was painfully shy as a kid, and what one of the things that attract, attracted me to radio, I wanted to have a, I wanted to be somebody and stand out, but I uh, it would be even the thought of appearing in front of a crowd would be would be terrifying so i thought radio i'll be in this little dark studio nobody will see me but right. i can still be a star so i always hooked up with somebody who was much more outgoing than i was and tommy boyce was the epitome of that and the great run that we had for 10 years uh he was the front man and and helped me to come out of my shell 
by high school, I was pretty much uh, out of the shell. But but uh, but then uh, there's Tommy. <laughs> there's Tommy, which is just you know over the top. And uh, after Tommy and I weren't working together, it was it was uh, Danny Jansen in the '70s, and it was uh, Dick Eastman in the '80s, and and um, even now, I mean, uh, I. I, I wrote this book by myself first, was not happy with, with it. I, I liked parts of it, but I knew it wasn't ready. And until I hooked up with Glenn Ballantyne, who really uh, helped to bring out a lot of the stuff that I hadn't even thought of. I, I was writing too much like a songwriter, doing the sto- stories very quickly, as I had done in interviews for years, you know, yeah. to get on to the next one. But he helped me to bring out... Uh, the details and to describe what it looked like, what I was going through, and what, it, what the smells in the air were, and so on. So, right. the, the, the partnership has just worked well for me my whole life, and um, and as you said, uh, meeting meeting my wife Marianne in in 1980 was uh, at just about the same time as I got Kriya Yoga, which was which is the meditation technique that I do, and that was a big turning point for me, um, and. Uh, so, uh, I, I think I think the awakening. You know, I was quite spiritual as a kid in the Christian church. Right. That, that had a couple big advantages for me. One was uh, beginning of a relationship with God by seeing those around me that were serious about their spiritual lives. But the second one was the music because of this kind of church that I grew up with. It was a great uh, breeding ground for uh, the kind of you know, from, for, for being a kind of a foundation for what I would build on in my music career. Uh, but the spiritual thing then kind of, as I reached puberty and, and through my early uh, years of having uh, stardom and success, the opportunities were uh, very uh, uh, tempting, and so I, I took advantage of that and kind of put on the shelf some of my uh, spiritual principles until uh, the 60s, and there was this cultural revolution that was that Tommy and I were immersed in. It was we, we came back to California after ha- having some success, success in New York. We signed to come back here with... Uh, we came back here to sign with Screen Gems Columbia Music, a publishing company. Right. And it's just that the timing was right. The, the scene was building, the... Summer of Love was coming. The kids were gathering on the Sunset Strip, and the love ends and the be ends. And uh, so, partially having to do with uh, psychedelic drugs uh, being discovered and being become, uh, I guess it came from Timothy Leary and those Harvard professors who, Richard Alpert, who were experimenting with uh, LSD and psychedelics. But right. somehow that had a connection to some. Most it didn't. Most it was not a spiritual journey to take LSD. It was a journey to go out and trip and say, oh, wow, look at the colors. You know? <laughs> right. The, but to some, there was that awakening that brought, uh, that brought a, a curiosity about um, deeper uh, kinds of spiritual experience that we weren't hearing about in our local little churches. So the, I, I began to get uh, recommended from some of these people who were taking these drugs to read certain books, and they started to open my head up again just as early as uh, 63, 64. And uh, luckily I didn't get 
deep into the into the morass of having to take the the chemicals myself because I could see what was going. We were immersed in all of this, but right. I could, I, we, we were somewhat observers. We were there to be at the love ends, but we were also professionals by that point. We had offices and we were writing hit songs and and cutting records. So you got to straddle so we, both worlds, really. Yeah, we were straddling both, and we could kind of look as observers and see, well, there's a lot of these kids that, that are, the, the stuff is, was prevalent because it was, uh, even in the early days, even before it was illegal, uh, it was just there in all shapes and forms and colors. But we could see the toll it was taking on a number of these people, and we could see that it wasn't just all, all peace and love. Uh, so we kind of tried to steer past that and take the good things and what I heard Indian music East Indian music for the first time and I was, wow what is that that was that was like this is different this is semitonal you know yeah. this is uh, instruments I've never heard and and then that led me to curiosity to read some of the books and and uh, and find eventually find Paramahansa Yogananda was my spiritual teacher and here you are and uh, wow um you were right. I mean, you had your finger on the pulse of everything that was happening and that time. And I mean, I read a lot of rock star autobiographies or pop star autobiographies and, you know, some are better than others. And you are very clear about the fact that for lack of a better term, you kind of stayed sober that whole time that you you weren't much of a drinker. You really stayed away from drugs. And in that time and in that industry, as you are you yourself are in the eye of the hurricane? Was it a challenge to stay out of that? Yeah, well, yes, it was. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the thing is about what you were saying being being in the eye of the of the hurricane. Uh, I think that what helped both of us is watching. People around us. I mean, a lot, a lot of our contemporaries didn't make it through. Yeah, and it was pretty obvious to see what uh, what the downs, downside risks were to some of this. And you know, some of it, I suppose, might have. Some people might have said, "Well, this helps my creativity, or whatever." But there might have been pluses, but we could also see the toll it was taking on our friends, some of our friends, and and. You know, we lost a bunch of them, and, yeah. uh, and that was sad. Well, then let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. And and <laughs> while you were while you were in the eye of the hurricane, there are a couple of experiences that you relayed in the book that are fascinating to me. Who was not there? And I think uh, one of the things that really exploded your head was Monterey. Monterey was a, a whole different experience. Monterey Pop, Pop Festival, the one and only. Uh, the first international Monterey Pop Festival, uh, where they used to hold jazz festivals in uh, right. Central California. A uh, beautiful weekend and being exposed to some kinds of music I had never heard before. Uh, it started when Tommy and I came back to California. You know, the first half of the 60s was a whole different musical genre than the second half. Right. If you look at it, and, and the first half was still the Paul Anchors and the... Uh, 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 and some of the doo-wop Your Bobby Rydell's and your... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Frankie Avalon, but... Uh... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The, the second half, and, and we, we left, I, I got here early in 1965, so we were here where the, in the epicenter, first half was all coming from New York, basically. The right. music business was New York-driven. That all started to shift in 1965. It wasn't because I came back, but it just had to work out. <laughs> I understand there were four other guys who had a pretty significant influence on everything. You were part so, of it, Bobby. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, you know, even Motown moved out here, and, uh, and the, the eastern the situated companies all started West Coast offices. And So when we got here, we were, we were still writing. We were getting our songs recorded by Herman's Hermits and... Uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys and Dino Desi and Billy and the softer rock guys but we immediately started uh, checking out the clubs in LA in 65 and on and you were watching people freak out people were freaking but the music was uh, was changing yeah. you know, we were seeing the doors and we were seeing Arthur Leo Love and there was all this new music we were hearing and that started to infiltrate into our record productions and so now we're getting cuts by Paul River and the Raiders and uh, Eric Burden and the Animals, and so a, a little harder edge to the to the songs that we were starting to write and produce, and uh, and so mu- music was changing, and, and that was something that Tommy and I were pretty adept at. We read the charts every week religiously and right. made sure that we were familiar with every cut on the top 100, and analyzed what we thought made it a hit. But and, uh, yeah, you guys were were on the strip watching watching the doors and watching the mothers and and right. and the birds and all that happen. But something just, according to the book, uh, uh, something just switched at Monterey, and it may have been Hendrix, but it may have been the whole scene. But I but I noticed a, a shift in your perception from that point. Am I off on that? Not at all. I think you're right about that. Uh, it, it was a shift. There was there was stuff there that we had not seen even at the whiskey. And one of the things was Robbie Shankar, who played an entire afternoon yeah. of just that was we didn't know music like this existed. Uh, that you could take a theme and make and just go off on it for hours. You know, it was just it was amazing. And then of course, Janice was great, uh, but that was not new to me. I had been. I've been pl- playing in clubs for years, uh, doing uh, you know white R and B, and that's what what she was doing because she did it great. Yeah. But but uh, but Hendrix, that was new, and uh, I didn't really understand it at all. But it had a tremendous impact. 
as it did on everybody who saw him at Monterey. That was one of his first big showcases where a lot of industry people saw him. And uh, it's where, I think it's where uh, Janice got signed from as well. But but Hendrix, uh, we just didn't know what was going on up there, setting his guitar on fire and, and playing it behind his back with his, you know, all that feedback. And it's just him and a drummer and a bass player, and it sounded like it's a wall of sound. And so we were we were blown away by it. Mickey Dolans was there, and he he uh, said, "Let's let's sign this guy to open our concerts." <laughs> you know, <laughs> everybody was uh, we were impressed. We just didn't know what it was. At the beginning. Oh, that's right. You were on that tour too, weren't you? You were you were backing up yeah. the guys on the on that uh, on the, yeah, the yeah. Monkey uh, Hendrix tour. Hendrix uh, replaced me. <laughs> 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 when we first went out, they had asked uh, me and my band, the Candy Store Prophets, to uh, come along on the Monkeys tours, on their first Monkeys tours, and uh, for about a year, and and. Uh, we would open the show before they came out, and then we would pl- we would back each of the four monkeys as they did a, f- a solo song in the in the in the uh, set, and that was a an explosive time. Twelve thousand little pink arms reaching out at you, boy! It was crazy. I talk about uh, in the book. I talk about uh, book is called Psychedelic Bubblegum. By the way, <laughs> well, I'm going to do a pre-recorded intro before the whole thing, so uh, okay. I'm going to set everything up. Yeah, I, I was just going to explain uh, why we called it psychedelic bubblegum. It's not about it's not about drugs. It's about the music, and uh, I was reflecting that we got pigeon. Tommy and I got pigeonholed as uh, writing bubblegum song, bubblegum music for for these uh, you know pre pubescent uh, yeah kids, and uh, and so they called it bubblegum music. But then when we started having these other influences that I was talking about with the feedback, uh, Hendrix guitars and the Indian instruments, I said, there's a new genre that was evolving called psychedelic music. So I, I said, well, I probably should have called it psychedelic bubblegum. That's where that title came from. <laughs> That's fantastic. You, um, you know... There was a question there. Get, get, get back to your question. It was a good one, and I... I and, uh, answer it if you remember what it was. <laughs> well, I mean, we were just we were just rapping about uh, about what it was like on the. Uh, oh, let's get back to how your perception changed at at Monterey. But I think we covered it with when yeah. Hendrix just kind of opened up the whole psychedelic thing. I mean, oh, we were talking about uh, opening for the Monkees uh, that we did it before him. Yeah. Then what was after that? I don't know. Well, we just we just kind of went on about. Tell me about your your experience with Hendrix. I mean, you were on the you were on the plane, right? With uh, with the monkeys and Hendrix. No, no, no. Uh, when uh, after we stopped touring with uh, the monkeys, they hired Hendrix. That was about the same time. That was, I think, Monterey was sixty seven, and that's right. when that was the beginning of the Boys and Heart career as artists, and so. We were into our own careers at that point, and here we go. Uh, here we go, and uh, and Hendrix took our place on the road. Wow! Opening opening act for the Monkees. So uh, Bobby... I did run into him on that trip. We had a A and M Records signed Boys and Heart as uh, recording artists, and we, they sent us on a I think a twelve city uh, uh, promotion tour for our first record, and we touched bases with the Monkees twice on that tour. One was in Miami, where uh, we went went backstage at the Monkees uh, concert and 
think he called Tommy and I out as he was singing, I Want to Be Free. And then when we got to New York, it was uh, hearing about or watching uh, these crowds, giant crowds standing on the sidewalk below the giant skyscraper where the monkeys were staying and, and uh, in the rain and <laughs> watching, watch you know, singing the, the, the song, our songs that we had written for them and so on. And um, at, at one point we did, uh, I did speak briefly with Hendrix, who at that point was thinking of leaving the tour because you could imagine the monkeys' audience, right? The bubblegummers. Uh, if we didn't know what it, what it was when we first saw it, uh, your twelve-year-old from Akron, Ohio, doesn't know either. Yeah. yeah. So the audience was not uh, accepting him well on stage, and he was getting kind of depressed by that, and about ready to leave. I think that's probably the week that he did decide to leave is when we saw him back there in that New York gig. A week and later, Purple Haze is on the charts. Yes. It was just the beginning of his career. It was a big big turning point for him. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so it was uh, at that point, you know, Boyce and Hart are touring. They're filling arenas and things like that. And, you know, we could... There's there's great stories about the music, but I think the most newsworthy thing that, and I say this with all due respect to the music, but the, one of the most important things that Boyce and Hart did is you changed the Constitution of the United States. Will, <laughs> will you tell me that story, Bobby? Not single-handedly, but we had a part in it, and uh, I'll always be proud of that. Uh, we, we signed with a, a new manager who did some fantastic things for us. Uh, so, so Joey... Uh, Joey Bishop had a talk show, uh, uh, an evening talk show. It was number two rated next to, just behind the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And uh, Joey had us on his show quite often. He really liked us. And, and one time he called us and said, there are these kids up north uh, at a university who started a campaign to lower the voting age to 18. And I've been supporting him on my show. And um, I'm going to go up and do this love rally, L-U-V, let us vote rally at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. And would you guys, what would you guys think about writing a theme song for this campaign and coming up and singing it? They're sending a Learjet for us. So we said, sure. So we got off the phone and wrote, wrote Let Us Vote L-U-V, and went up. And that's where uh, oh, we could see there was this giant auditorium filled with kids who were very enthusiastic about lowering the voting age. And... Uh, and we we met the fellow who was part of starting that off. He was a political science uh, director for the school. And as things worked out, later hired him to be our manager. And the guy did unbelievable things for Boyce and Hart, which I won't get into, but he just made it's a in the book. deal for us. It's in the book. It's in the book. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, but one of the things was that he arranged... Uh, uh, they they ask us for the the campaign of kids ask us and he was the point man on that to be the national spokesperson so we were going around the country doing uh, newspaper radio interviews talking about it on our our concerts uh, this campaign to lower the voting age and then we actually went to Washington yeah you went to Congress the, yeah and lobbied the senators and congressmen and it turns out that they were all for it uh, I guess. It, I saw it as maybe there were more voters for them, or I don't know, but everybody seemed to be behind it. 
and uh, a couple of, took a couple of years for all the states to ratify it, but it it, it happened. And There's a a great story in the book about when uh, Alan Cranston pulled you guys aside, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil the story because I, I want I want folks to read this book. It's uh, of of all the pop star. Uh, autobiographies that I've read. This is, it's full of great stories. So uh, you're able to pick it up uh, wherever uh, wherever books are sold, of course. Um, and so so you went to Washington, and I mean the rest is really history. The 18 year olds now, uh, as as a uh, a result of many hands, including yours, uh, the voting age was lowered to 18, which at the time seemed fair to put it in perspective. 18 year olds were dying in the, in the jungles of Vietnam as well, but couldn't represent themselves. That was our main impetus really, because there was this war going on. That a lot of the younger generation did not uh, understand or believe in. And yet the draft was on. So they were being sent there against their will, patriotic as they were, uh, but they still couldn't have a voice in electing politicians that might have had a different view. So we just didn't, we saw an inequity there that we wanted to get involved in. I'm, I'm hearing all these rumbles today uh, about people who are trying to talk about lowering the voting age to 16 now. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> that may be a little a little too far. And um, I've heard people say it was a it was a terrible thing that we did that that eighteen year olds don't you know but I I don't believe that I believe eighteen year olds uh, are, are smarter than their parents a lot of times and uh, and and have new perspectives and certainly at that at that uh, juncture uh, in nineteen sixty nine they needed to they needed to have a voice. No man, I I registered to vote on my uh, on my eighteenth birthday, March fifth, nineteen eighty seven. There I was. There you go. Um. So uh, we'll talk a little bit ab- about music. Um, you have been, your music's been recorded by like everybody from Chubby Checker to Quentin Tarantino to the Sex Pistols, right? That's true. Are there covers of your songs that you, you know, people play for you and you shrug and go, well, uh, that's one way to do it. That's not the way I saw it, but good on you. Are there, are there things that you just kind of cock your head a little bit and go, well, okay. Sure. There, you always you always have that, but you're always uh, gratified that somebody found enough of your song to want to record it, and didn't maybe maybe their vision of it, like you said, wasn't my vision of it. But it's who's, who's to say who's right? There's no right or wrong in music or any kind of art. You know, there's some some people make music that others don't understand, and some people make music for the masses. That is, that's my quote. That's my that's my poll for the whole thing, Bobby. That's awesome. Uh, I really, I love that. Um, let's see, where did I, going through my notes here a little bit. Yeah. Um, can we talk about, uh, about Matthews a little bit? Um, I'm interested yeah. in, in what you learned in that arc because he, no question did some great things for Boyce and Hart, yeah. but the, the denouement of that story is, is really powerful and it, it, um, is really one of the best stories in the book. Um, what did you learn from your experience, not necessarily from Matthews, but from that experience? Well, it had a, it had a very sad, uh, tragic ending, actually, uh, because of all the wonderful things that he created for us, things that we never would have, heights we never would have attained without him. He had actually uh, 
larger dreams and goals for Boyce and Hart than Boyce and Hart did. And that's why we hired him. We could see this guy right. was an individual uh, unlike any other who who had done tremendous things in the past. We also knew that there was a there was a dark side and a flaw uh, in his personality, but we thought that we would just keep a close eye on that. And uh, it turned out that it was also the undoing of Boyce and Hart. Yeah, because when it, when it all came down, uh, Tommy took it really hard. And yeah. it, it, it really, it, like a switch flipped in him at that moment. Yeah. That's, that's true, and it's one that's been hard to, I, I have not really been able to explain it to myself over all these years. And so it's hard to explain it in the book other than to just to tell the chronological facts as I remember them of how it happened. Cause but I mean, uh, yeah, that cause, was a, that was a that was a big one to uh, to blow Tommy's mind in that way. Because that was going to be kind of my follow up question. Um, you know, why why do you think that blew Tommy's mind as much as it did? Yeah, it like I said, I I don't know the answer yeah. to it. Uh, I I've heard speculations. I've heard the uh, we talk about the fact that they that Tommy and uh, and Matthews got close and almost a. He wasn't that much older than us, but it still was a father figure kind of thing, I think, to Tommy. And um, just blew his mind when he felt betrayed by by this person. And and uh, that's that's one explanation. Somebody else used the word nervous breakdown. I would never use that because Tommy continued to seem normal to me throughout it, other than the fact that that part of his life went away. Right. Um, and so much good came out of that, um, that period so much, you know, it seemed like your creative energy was really high. You were everywhere. You know, it was what that 18 year old kid who was sitting in front of the IHOP at sunset and vine wanted to be, Yeah. you know, so we it's, it's true. And, uh, and, and we had tried both Tommy and I had tried to be a recording artists for years, had been recording artists for years without much success to show for it. And so, be, out of the monkeys came the opportunity to to be a team of singers, and out of that came came a success and fulfillment that we'd been looking for. And and there you are, and that's how that's how Quentin Tarantino came to co- to cover Boys and Heart, <laughs> which is which is a great story again in the book. And as much as I'd love to have you tell you have you tell it, it's it's in the book. So, uh, Boys and Heart, you know, comes. Uh, comes to an end for a while and yeah. you know you survive through the 70s and you have this uh, you don't tell stories that there was a story missing that i that i wanted to hear and i don't know if it's there or not so i'm going to ask you live okay. next door to harry nelson yes and everybody i know who's had any connection with harry has harry stories yeah you know i never became close with okay. him and we even though we're next door neighbors uh but I did know him. I knew him sure. way before that when he was uh, a bank teller at Bank of America on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. I, my connection with Harry was uh, John Mariscalco, who was the pioneer, a, a pioneer of rock and roll, who wrote Rip It Up and Ready Teddy and oh. uh, Send Me Some Lovin' and uh, uh, Long Tall Sally, I guess he wrote that. Um, and uh, he was a friend of it was back to the Jesse Hodges connection way back in the in the late 50s I became friends with uh, John and John cut singles with me in those days and uh, 
but John was a friend of Harry's, and so I met him. But it was always kind of peripheral. Last time I saw Harry was at a restaurant on, on Sunset Strip, not too long before he passed. Right. And uh, he sent a bottle of wine over to my wife and I were having lunch, and and so we went over and sat next to him. And I don't know who he, he was sitting next to. Might have might have been Chuck Black. It was a drummer, I believe. And we chatted with him for a while. But I, we never had a close connection. I just yeah. know that he was a great talent, and I know that he could sound like anybody <clears throat> because I heard many of his early records where <clears throat> you could have swear you could have sworn he was uh, Johnny Mathis or Ray <laughs> Charles. <laughs> but when he decided to uh, to do a tribute to Paul McCartney, that's when he took off, and that was the sound that, that was amazing. Remember and love him for you know. He, Every now and then I, I do these interviews and I'm like, I just want to sit down with a stack of 45s and play them with Bobby. I think that would be so much fun just to go. It would. Just, yeah. just to play it. So let's do that sometime. Let's do it. Um, so, you know, you you survived through the, the 70s and 80s. There's Dolan's Jones, Boyce and Hart, and that's the stories in there. So let's let's get up to the present because we're, we're running out of time. Um, first of all, I want to know what's in Bobby Hart's iPod. <laughs> Bobby Hart, uh, uh, Nikki gave me a name, and I can't. You probably know it. It's the it's a name of a guy who didn't want to go into when the industrial revolution uh, came about, and didn't want to go up to the times and and get involved. Oh, we in, call you a luddite. Yes, a luddite. <laughs> okay. So, so that so Bobby Hart has no iPod. All right. So if I if uh, I got if I got in your car, which by the way is the fourth thing I noticed all the way through, is you love your cars. Um, <laughs> and thanks for including the the uh, picture of was it the Impala that went off the ditch? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, the one that got smashed uh, yep. going over the cliff three times, turning over three times on the bottom of it. <laughs> so <laughs> so if I got behind your wheel and I turned the key and the and whatever sound system you have in there, which I'm sure is incredible, comes on, what am I likely to hear? Well, it's a beat sound system uh, only because it came with the car. Right. Uh, and I don't, well, you, you like to hear, like to hear, you'd likely hear uh, very eclectic uh, stuff depending on the day you came in. We, we might be playing seriously Sinatra on serious radio. Right. We might be playing uh, Joel Olstein Channel and Sirius Radio. Which Interesting, is always inspirational. Okay, we might be playing uh, Cousin Brucey's uh, Sirius Radio Channel. We might be playing the local PBS uh, station here on FM. Uh, we might be playing KRF One Hundred One, which is the oldies uh, station in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. And we might be sticking in a, uh, a CD of somebody that. That we know that there's somebody that we're interested in, and there you go. Um, with with regard to the book, which is your your latest project, are there new things coming that we can keep our eyes open for? Well, the book is you know part of what I wanted to do with the book. I wanted to tell the stories uh, because these are th things people have asked me about you know over the last fifty years, and so I think we did a pretty good job of that, and I appreciate your evaluation of it. But I also wanted to share some of the principles and some of the ideas that I came came across, some some that people had shared with me that made it easier for me and, and were shortcuts to my. I, looking back, I, you know, 
you don't kind of know what, as you're going through life, you don't kind of know what's going on so much, but if you, <laughs> you have to go through a process like this, even just putting it in chronological order, the mind plays tricks. You don't, I don't know if you realize, but when you sit down to do that, you say, well, I'm sure that this happened before. No, it couldn't have because this guy was already passed on. Or, you know, this, when you do the research of a book, it's quite a process. Yeah. And in doing so, I could see there were all of these, all of these little shortcuts that that helped me on my way through that journey of, of success. And so I wanted to pass whatever I had learned. Which on. which you do. There are breaks in between. I call them the the act breaks because the the uh-huh. first act ends with uh, the your with three to six points of uh-huh. spiritual enlightenment, and and it breaks up the book in that way. And as much as I'd love for you to explain those, they're in the book, and they're <laughs> really yeah. I think the meat that you want people to get out of the book, right? Yeah, so that's true, and and so that's kind of what the future. You asked about the future, and I, that's how I see my future. I, I've I think uh, the music business has changed so much that I'm not going to be as active as I have in the past. I will do things, you know, pick and choose when they come to me. But but what I'd like to do is continue sharing some of the principles, and I think that we'll probably Glenn and I will probably do a second book more directly related to to those kinds of things that I think people can learn from uh, about creativity, about changing your thoughts to change your life, uh, and some of, the, some of the things I've learned from meditation and so on. Wow. Uh, that would be, uh, having read the first book, I think that would be an interesting book. And in the back of my head, I'm like, I hope he does a soundtrack to that <laughs> the second book. I think that would be really interesting to hear uh, kind of a spiritual meditation um music coming with with your soul yeah. coming through plus i'm a big fan of the hammond b3 anyway ah that's fun <laughs> well that's that's a good idea i we we've played around with doing uh, a cd to go with the book but it just it we just wasn't time to do all of that and do it right yeah uh, there is uh if you go on uh, bobbyhart.com there's an opportunity to download an unreleased bobby hart uh song uh, record um, if you buy the book, uh, you know you can buy it on Amazon or whatever, and right. put in that. So, and if, you that, don't, if you don't have the Boyce and Hart anthology, you have no business listening to this show anyway. <laughs> That's right. The <laughs> anthology is the one. Which one? The one that came from uh, uh, England? Yeah, yeah. But it's it's yeah. available on uh, on Amazon, and uh, I think, oh, good. I think I t- you're you're not a lot you're you're a luddite, so I th- there's a lot of Boyce and Hart on iTunes as well. Yeah, I mean, there is because I didn't. I think the last time somebody checked for me, they said it was only I wonder was the only thing they could find. But that's good to hear. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure you know we'll be traveling and uh, doing some events. And there's the the documentary that uh, Rachel Lickman uh, uh, made with uh, Andrew Sandoval called Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, the guys who wrote them. That's in in the works. So there'll be showings of that around. So. There's yeah, stuff there, going on. There was Keeping, a screening at uh, at the Silent, right, on on Fairfax, not that long ago. Yeah, there was a screening last August. There, there was a film festival screening in Chicago, and and there were at last last year's Monkey Convention in at Meadowlands, New Jersey. They showed it. So that should be coming to a, a streaming platform near you. Uh, yeah, and you know Andrew does such a great job with that kind of stuff. So that's that's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, he's good. Uh, parting shots, Bobby. Anything you want the world to know other than what you've uh, you've told them in four hundred pages? 
No, only that uh, that I'm definitely grateful that people still are interested in in this stuff and that people are still uh, listening to some of the music and you you just never know. You sit down for an hour and you do what you think is creativity and and uh, 99% of the time it's sitting there on a on a little tape recorder that nobody ever hears and then but well one of those and you don't know which one it is really you don't know all the planets align and then one of those people still are humming and and they're saying oh i love that that was i sang that at my graduation or whatever <laughs> those are those are just the gratifying uh thoughts that i have and and that uh, we got this far with a book that some that an agent was was uh, was willing to take it on and that a publisher was willing to take it on and then i'll live and my co-writer came on board which made the book so much better and so I'm I'm grateful for every day and for for the past and for the present and hopefully the future is going to take care of itself. Beautiful, Bobby. Thank you so much. This has been this has been great. I'm going to stop recording right now. Good. And uh, I'm going to tell you that this is uh, I've been looking forward to this all week and I'm really uh, really glad. I hope you're as pleased with how things came out as I am. Very good. It was a very intelligent interview and led me places that I hadn't gone in other other ones that I've been doing, so this is very good. Uh, uh, would you do me a favor and let um, Creativo know, uh, my, my, our publicist, uh, where when this will be on and where, so they can also promote people to tune into it? I promised both Glenn and Carolyn, who, by the way, was awesome in connecting us, Yeah. Um, that, uh, that not only would I let you know, but I'd send you links. And I've, I've got Glenn's mailing address, so because you're a Luddite, I'm going to put this on CD, and <laughs> I am going to be very tickled that, uh, for a change, Bobby Hart has a CD of mine. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it'd be great. Thanks, man. This is really, this is really a pleasure. Um, I told Glenn, and I'll tell you, count on me for an outlet if there's anything that uh, I can't imagine what I could possibly do for you. But if you, you know, want to come back and tell some stories, that would be great. You ever want to sit down with some forty fives? Nothing would be cooler for me. Yeah, that sounds good. Cool, man. Well, I, all right, Jim, it's really, been fun. The pleasure is all mine. The pleasure is <laughs> all mine, man. Let me tell you. Um, thanks. Have a great afternoon, and okay. uh, and keep smiling. Thanks for everything. Same, same to you, and talk soon. Wake up, girl. Stop and look around. Wake up, girl. Good things to be found. Wake up, girl. If you look, you will see. said Bobby Hart, opening up your eyes to Coke. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.